COVID isolation adjustments. The science suggests that Omicron is different than, for example, the Delta variant in important ways. New guidelines give more freedom to close contacts and the communications fail to get the message out. Crowded hospitals putting patients at risk where COVID infections are no longer separated from other patients. And a young homicide victim who might have predicted her own death. Losing someone that had as much light as she did is really difficult. The social media post that warned she felt threatened. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. Confusion and frustration in B.C. today after the B.C. CDC quietly changed the guidelines for COVID-19 isolation and testing last night with no communication. Richard Zussman has more on the changes and what the B.C. Center for Disease Control is saying about its tactics today. Changing the COVID rules. We're led by our public health leaders on questions of science and will continue to be. The BC CDC rolling out new advice for when people should isolate and get tested. There's now no need to get tested if you have mild COVID symptoms. And if you are a close contact to someone who is sick, you no longer need to isolate if you don't have symptoms. This is leading to challenges for employers determining who can be in the workplace. The challenge for employers when, when we're not told specifically the reasons for the change in the, the CDC guidance. My understanding is that it seems it might be either there's not the capacity to continue to do contact tracing or we just assume that everyone's been exposed or is exposed and really the focus is now on symptoms. The BC CDC first posted guidance Tuesday then amended it Wednesday apologizing to the public for the confusion. This includes COVID test positive adults who are unvaccinated. <laughs> At one point the guidance said it was a five-day isolation period but then it switched to 10 days or when symptoms are gone whatever is longer. And if you have mild symptoms, no matter your vaccine status and don't get tested, you can stop isolating when your symptoms are gone, no matter how long you were sick. The issue, though, is that if you're, you're sick, stay home. And this isn't just true for COVID-19, it's true in general, but if you're sick, stay home. If you test positive and are vaccinated or test positive and are under 18, no matter your vaccine status, you can stop isolating five days after your test or when symptoms are gone, whatever is longer. One little, two little, This will have a big side. difference on daycares. It really looks like uh, we've kind of been deemed as uh, safe to unsafely operate. In addition to the CDC changes, the province also issuing new guidance for child cares. The facilities are now essential services and can't close if a majority of staff or kids have been close contacts to a COVID case. If we're expected to continue to have children in the classroom that are potentially sick or educators that may be asymptomatic carriers, then what we've found is that it actually extends the closures. Well, Richard Zisman joins us now with more on this. Richard, with all the recent changes, it's really hard to blame people for feeling a little confused. 
Yeah, and you can see that confusion, you can see the frustration in childcare operators all compounded in what has been a disastrous week for public health communication. So let's look, take a look at a timeline here. Go back to Monday, Dr. Bonnie Henry made some changes to provincial health orders. It put gyms uh, and hospitality in flux. You then go to Tuesday, she apologized about those orders. You move to Tuesday night and what happened then was the CDC started changing its guidelines. They changed them again on Wednesday night and then ultimately on Thursday, the BC CDC apologizing. Now tomorrow's Friday, Chris, Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix will be providing a briefing at 10 a.m. No doubt this issue will be dominant in terms of the questions. And back to the child care issue, the changes also mean kids who have been told they have to isolate because they were a close contact can now return to daycare. That also, no doubt, will be a big topic of discussion tomorrow in the briefing. All right, 10 a.m. We'll set an alarm. Thanks very much. Richard Zisman reporting in Victoria. Now a look at today's COVID-19 numbers. We have 891 people in hospital. 119 of those patients are in the ICU. 15 more people have died from complications of the virus in the last day. Active cases dropped below 35,000, and that includes 2,150 new infections today. We'll bring in Keith Baldry now to drill a little deeper into those hospital numbers. Keith, day to day, there wasn't a lot of change in the overall number, but there's a reason we're counting differently now. Yeah, there's so many hospitalizations occurring now. The daily number doesn't really make a lot of sense because it's a net increase or decrease, and a decrease today. But that's not what's happened in BC hospitals. Take a look at this; these numbers. It'll probably shock you. 158 people is the increase of people tested positive in hospitals in one day. That's a record one-day number. So forget the decrease of 4%. That's 158 additions. 21% increase in ICU patients in one week. Three patients under 19 years remain in ICU. First report of that last night and they are un all unvaccinated. 47% of the fully vaccinated in the ICU are over the age of 70. I get questions from people saying, well, wait a minute, vaccinated people are in the ICU. What's that all about? Does it mean the vaccines aren't safe? No, what it means is that older people who have underlying health conditions can still go into the ICU and can still die from COVID-19. Younger people are getting enormous protection from the vaccines, Chris. So the ICU numbers, uh, the percentage of people being unvaccinated, there are dropping a bit. But again, 10% of the population are unvaccinated. They have a disproportionately high number of of unvaccinated people in hospitals, ICUs, and passing away from COVID-19 on a daily basis. Can't repeat that message enough. Thanks very much, Keith. Again, Keith Baldry and Victoria. Well, it looks like at least one BC health authority is relaxing its policies when it comes to the hospitalization of COVID-19 patients. As Ted Chernecki reports, Fraser Health may no longer be keeping all COVID-positive patients in separate areas. Until now, COVID-positive patients brought into a hospital in the Fraser Health Authority would have been placed in an area reserved for other COVID patients, cohorts. If Fraser Health has come to the point where they're no longer cohorting patients who have COVID-19, that is a real departure from past practice. And it's a bit of an indication about how serious the situation is in our hospitals. According to a memo obtained by Global News, COVID-19 cohorts will be reserved for patients requiring medical management or significant respiratory symptoms. Patients who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic will receive care in the unit that best serves their care needs. 
They would not be put in the same room with patients who are immunocompromised, have cardiac or respiratory illness, or a newborn child, and only with fully vaccinated roommates. We have to review on an urgent basis the measures that we're taking to protect healthcare workers. Today, Fraser Health's CEO held a teleconference call to talk about maternity care at Peace Arch Hospital. We tried to ask about this memo. Wondering uh, if this is, uh, if you can elaborate on why. Um there is now mixing or will be mixing of COVID positive patients with negative tested patients in the same room. Remained fully funded. We asked for an answer three times. Global news here. Um, Ted, we'll want Ted's question answered, uh, but this is on, on this topic. And each time a public relations media person deferred. Heard your question. We'll get back to you on that one. Today we're, we're talking about the Peace Arts Hospital Attorney Service right now. And even though the CEO is right there, we did not get a response before our deadline. So here's another reason to stay out of hospital. In Fraser Health, you could find yourself lying two meters away from a patient with the virus. Who knew your treatment might include an unhealthy dose of COVID? Ted Chernecki, Global News. Good news for those protesting the planned closure of the maternity ward at Peace Arch Hospital later this month. Today, Fraser Health reversed its decision, although that doesn't mean the problem is fixed. Imadagahi is live with more on Fraser Health's change of plans and what it means for parents. Imad. Yeah, it means peace of mind for young families because otherwise giving birth would have meant a 30-minute stressful drive to the next nearest hospital, either Langley or Surrey Memorial. And I think uh, what we're seeing here is that persistence, that pressure from the community pay off because they've really rallied together in the last few days to express their concerns loudly with that original decision. So we've seen many people hold and attend rallies to demand Fraser Health change its decision to temporarily close the maternity ward here at Peace Arch Hospital due to what it had called at the time an unexpected leave or in simple terms a staffing crisis and recruitment problems meaning that come January 28th expected mothers would have had to uh, give birth at Langley or Surrey Memorial Hospital. Now after public pressure and important meetings between Fraser Health and pediatricians today it was announced Fraser Health changed its mind due to what it now calls significant new scheduling commitments. Now I spoke with the head of the Peace Arch Maternity Clinic who has been critical in this story the last couple of days and he says it was important that Peace Arch Hospital continue to be there and deliver babies in this growing community. He says roughly 1,000 babies are delivered here each year despite the hospital not having its own observation unit. Here's more from Dr. Strofsky. I have to give a big thank you to the community, to the patients, to our past, present and future patients and certainly to all the nurses, doctors and midwives who got together, rallied for, for, for this. And uh, I also have to uh, uh, give a thank you to Fraser Health. Now, with this news, Fraser Health also did mention that there could be what it calls sporadic day diversions, which means that on any given day, it could go back to that closure. It doesn't think it would happen often, maybe three or four days in February. And Dr. Strofsky also mentioned that they do still need two full-time pediatricians at this hospital to be fully staffed for that expectation of 1,000 babies here in 2022. All right, Ahmad Agahi reporting from White Rock. Thanks very much, Ahmad. The municipal election is still more than eight months away, but a growing number of high-profile candidates are contemplating a run to unseat Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. 
As Catherine Urquhart reports, that list already includes at least one sitting councillor, a local MLA, and a long-term Surrey MP. Longtime Liberal MP Souk Dollywall is the latest person to test the political waters municipally in Surrey, saying he may seek election as mayor. There's no secrets about people approaching me to run, and there are no secrets that I am thinking to run for the mayor of Surrey. Councillor Brenda Locke has already announced she's running. The next step is going to be the, uh, the election in 2022. Also expressing interest in the job, Dolly Wall's former political rival, MLA Ginny Sims. Another possible contender, Councillor Linda Annis, who says she hasn't yet decided. It's a tricky question of timing. You want to announce early enough to give yourself the time to campaign and get yourself known. Uh, on the other hand, you want to wait a little bit to see who else might be in the race. Mayor Doug McCallum is facing strong criticism about lack of transparency, notably involving transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Right across here. And there's that not-so-small matter of a criminal charge against him for public mischief involving his claims he was struck by a vehicle and injured. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. McCallum's first court date is January 25th. An unusual situation. Um, and and I think it's it's a bit of a problem for, for Mr. McCallum if the charges are not cleared by the time the voting happens in, in the fall. Suk Dollywal once faced his own criminal matter in 2014, pleading guilty to three charges of tax evasion. Even so, he was elected MP for Surrey Newton the following year. And if he does jump into municipal politics, it would be yet one more reason to watch Surrey's mayoral race. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A young woman's body found in a Kelowna dog park and the chilling message we've now learned she posted on social media just before it happened. Warning, she might be in danger. That's next on the News Hour. A Euclid First Nation cut off from its safe water supply. How the Tongan volcano eruption might be partly to blame. Coming up on the News Hour. And Mechanic Mercenaries, the team of volunteers driving for miles to get waterlogged tractors up and running again. That's later. Right now, though, despite a string of shootings in the past couple of weeks that left one young man dead, and a number of bystanders hurt, we heard today from some of B.C.'s top police officers claiming success in combating gang-related violence. As Kamal Kuramali reports, the RCMP and integrated gang squads say the recent shootings all appear to be tied to low-level drug dealers and not organized criminal gangs. A violent month across the Lower Mainland, shooting after shooting. Two weeks ago, a targeted attack killing an 18-year-old in Langley. Then a week later, a shooting outside a Coquitlam pub. And on Wednesday, bullets flew at a Surrey warming center. One thing they all have in common, innocent bystanders were injured. We're here to address the recent shootings that have left four innocent bystanders Injured. Thursday, RCMP tried to quell concerns of increasing gun violence. These acts of violence impact the public sense of safety and well-being. 
This is absolutely unacceptable. Now, police say early investigation results show the shootings are not related to a resurgence in gang violence, but have to do with more minor players in street-level drug trafficking. So we're talking about young men. We're talking about very young men involved in these activities. For now, the shootings don't appear to be connected to each other. That, however, doesn't discount the seriousness of the incidents. Still serious and a problem that some say needs to be tackled by the courts by keeping criminals behind bars instead of allowing them to get back out on the streets too quickly. You got to send them a message. And, you know, that includes the courts. They got to be involved. It's got to be a holistic approach and say, if you fire guns off in the public, You're staying in jail, period. But police say they've made progress in the past year, coordinating efforts across municipalities, and their figures show a decline in gun violence towards the end of 2021. But they have this message for parents. Parents need to know uh, who their children are with, what they're doing, what's happening after school, why are they coming home late at night. And they're again appealing to the public, if you see something suspicious, call police. Kamala Kramali, Global News. Vancouver police are asking for some help to find a man who failed to return to his halfway house and is wanted on a Canada-wide warrant. 51-year-old Timothy Wislozel failed to return by curfew on January 19th. Police say he poses a risk to the public. He's described as white, 5 feet 7 inches tall. He weighs 250 pounds, has salt and pepper hair and brown eyes. He has a tattoo of a cross on his left forearm and a star on his right forearm. Anyone who sees him is asked to call 911 immediately. The family of an Ontario woman is struggling to come to terms with their loss after her body was found in a Kelowna dog park on Sunday. Austin Godfrey had been living in B.C. for about a year. And as Jonna Semple reports, she left a strong clue that she felt her life might be in danger. To lose someone in your family is hard. Uh, Losing someone that had as much light as she did is really difficult, especially with how young she was. Ben Rogers remembers his cousin, 25-year-old Austin Godfrey, as a social butterfly. She was all about love. She was all about passion and caring for this world and just wanted love in this world. Those who knew Godfrey were shocked to learn her body was discovered in a park in Kelowna, British Columbia on Sunday. Godfrey grew up in Kingston, Ontario, but had been living in Western Canada for the last several years. The RCMP says the death is suspicious and the serious crime unit is investigating, focusing on Godfrey's whereabouts leading up to the discovery of her body on the morning of the 16th. No call too small, no piece of information that's too small. Um, Even if people may think, well, I was at the park, but I don't have anything to offer, I didn't see anything, we still want to speak to you. Godfrey's family has asked for privacy at this tragic and difficult time, but did tell Global News an autopsy performed Wednesday was inconclusive on a cause of death. A toxicology report is also being done. While the family waits for answers, they're now focused on bringing Godfrey's remains back to Kingston and have set up an online fundraiser in hopes to help with the cost. As a family, we just, we just want her back. Godfrey's family says she was very active on social media and confirmed that she had posted she was afraid someone might hurt her, going so far as to say, if I haven't snapped in a week, please call Kelowna police. Kelowna RCMP say the investigation continues and they don't believe there's any risk to public safety. Jonna Semple, Global News, Kingston. Coming up, a tragic discovery near the Canada-U.S. border. The bodies of four people found frozen to death 
and the criminal charges that might explain how they got there. And an agreement with First Nations to right historic wrongs in Canada's justice system. Traffic is steady over here in both directions at the Batalo Bridge with most of the delays on the north side trying to get on using the Columbia Street on-ramp. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the Patello Bridge. There was a vigil in the community of Quinal today for a young First Nations woman who was murdered. large crowd gathered at the motel where the body of 33-year-old Carmelita Abraham was found. Her family reported her missing, telling police they last spoke with her just before Christmas. Court documents say she was killed December 28th. Organizers say today's ceremony honored not only Carmelita, but all women who have been victims of crime. 51-year-old Quinnell resident Joseph Simpson has been charged with murder and indignity to human remains. The B.C. First Nations Justice Council and the federal and provincial governments have taken a big step towards reform and reconciliation in the justice system. B.C.'s Attorney General and the federal justice minister have formalized their support of the 43-point B.C. First Nations Justice Strategy unveiled last March. Nitu Garcha has the details. According to the Office of the Correctional Investigator, the overall Indigenous inmate population is now at more than 30% of the overall prison population. Calling it a new era in reforming a colonial legacy that's resulted in systemic racism and violence, the BC First Nations Justice Council has signed an agreement with the provincial and federal governments that's been years in the making. From the over-policing of our people to the criminalization of structural poverty, we cannot commit to anything less than a massive overhaul of our justice system. This tripartite agreement focuses on funding 15 Indigenous justice centres across BC, offering free legal services through a culturally safe model. And Ottawa hopes to expand the idea across the country. The Government of Canada will provide over $8.9 million over five years to the BC First Nations Justice Council to expand their Indigenous Justice Centre pilot project. The strategy also seeks to change the system from within. We want to see more Indigenous lawyers, more Indigenous judges and more Indigenous justice workers across the system. A lot of work remains to be done. This is a real milestone uh, for all of Canadians. Cook P. Judy Wilson of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs says this partnership builds on the momentum from many First Nations who've been rebuilding and reaffirming their laws, pointing to an example from the Squamish Nation last year when it told the BC government it plans to defer old growth logging in its territory. I thought that was a beautiful way to stand up and hold up our Indigenous laws and our caretaking responsibilities. It's hoped policies made by and for Indigenous people will also help transform the Indigenous child welfare system. Through Bill C-92, which is brilliant in its intuitive simplicity, which is people should take care of their own kids. So recognize the right of Indigenous peoples to take care of their own children. A seemingly simple concept Indigenous leaders hope is finally implemented meaningfully and urgently, with both the provincial and federal attorney generals promising the kind of concrete action that hasn't been seen in decades. Neetu Garcha, Global News. Coming up, preserving a pristine part of BC. You walk for days in old growth forest. What's so special about a place they call the Donut Hole? 
and why it just got better protection. And an owl nicknamed Houdini gets a little help to escape this mess in Enderby. Traffic is steady over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge in both directions this evening with just a bit of leftover volume on the east-west connector through Richmond. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Manitoba RCMP say four people, including a baby, were found dead Wednesday morning at the Canada-U.S. border during extreme cold. It's believed the group was trying to cross into the U.S. by foot and died from exposure. Global's Brittany Greenslade has the latest, including what we're learning about a man now charged in the case. In the middle of winter and the punishing prairie cold, in the dark and on foot, no one should die like this. All victims were located approximately 9 to 12 meters from the border. And at this very early stage of the investigation, it appears that they all died due to exposure to cold weather. On Wednesday morning, U.S. Customs officers apprehended a group crossing near Emerson, a Manitoba border town. RCMP were alerted and hours later found the bodies, two adults, a teenage boy and an infant. The RCMP's assistant commissioner was visibly shaken. These victims face not only the cold weather, but also endless fields, large snowdrifts and complete darkness. RCMP feared the crossing was organized. The victims abandoned. We're very concerned that this attempted crossing may have been facilitated in some way and that these individuals, including an infant, were left on their own in the middle of a blizzard when the weather hovered around minus 35 degrees Celsius. Late Thursday, U.S. officials charged an American man with four counts of human smuggling. Court documents state the group may have been traveling with others who told police they'd been walking for more than 11 hours. Asylum seekers have often crossed to seek refuge in Canada. One night in 2017, 22 people were intercepted near this same place. But crossing south is less common. I do understand that for some there may be a great need to get to another country, but this is not the way. You will be risking your life and the lives of the people you care about if you try it. For now, there are so many questions, and the cross-border investigation is just beginning. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. Winnipeg. An important watershed that's a short road trip from Metro Vancouver is one big step closer to being protected forever. Paul Johnson tells us why the area known as the Donut Hole, nestled between two provincial parks, is now off limits to logging and mining. It is a gorgeous area when you get up on top of some of these mountains. You get in there, you walk for days in old growth forest with this beautiful crystal clear stream at its bottom. For Joe Foy of the Wilderness Committee, seeing this wild enclave in southern BC, having its status changed to protected has been a near 20-year journey that came to its resolution this week. It is literally a hole in the middle of the parks that was not included, and people have waited decades to see that rectified. The hole is a 5,800-hectare space surrounded by the Manning and Skagit parks. When those parks were created, the donut hole was left out because of a handful of mining claims on that land. The company that held them, Vancouver-based Imperial Metals, agreed to surrender those claims for $24 million. 
to be paid by the province and other stakeholders. If a mining company ever succeeded in getting a permit to go after that, it would be an environmental disaster. Well, some will say that's an alarmist claim. Conservationists have a recent precedent that worries them. That's the affluent from the tailings pond. The 2014 Mount Polly mine disaster that happened when the dam holding back a tailings pond collapsed and sent 20 million cubic meters of water and slurry into nearby lakes and creeks. The company that owned that mine was also Imperial Metals. This area drains into the Skagit River, uh, which is a very valuable and valued uh, fishing river. Imperial Metals didn't respond to our request for an interview. But in a statement, the president said, while they would have preferred to have gone ahead with their project, they recognize the aspirations of those who want to protect the area and support the agreement. If you're wondering what kind of opportunities there will be for recreation in the donut hole, the expectation is that'll be worked out by the province and First Nations in the coming months and years. Paul Johnson, Global News. In health matters tonight, restaurants in Ontario are expected to reopen to indoor dining at the end of the month. Premier Doug Ford expected to make an official announcement on Thursday that restaurants will open at 50% capacity on January 31st. Right now, restaurants in that province can only offer delivery, takeout or patio service. Premier Ford has been hinting for a few days that the province might also ease restrictions on eateries, gyms, cinemas and museums. Still ahead, the tractor repair team. Something like this happens, you gotta stick together as a community. The mobile mechanics giving up their weekends to help flooded farmers get back to business. But first, a coastal BC water supply line cut off. Why some are blaming a volcano thousands of kilometers away. Officials on the west coast of Vancouver Island now believe the huge volcanic eruption off Tonga might have played a role in cutting off the water supply to a B.C. First Nation. Kylie Stanton has the details on the unusual sequence of events that might have contributed to the state of emergency. What may look like just a pipe to some is a lifeline for the Ukulit First Nation. Currently under repair, the 250 people living on the Hitatsu lands cut off from their potable water. A water line that was connecting our, our service from uh, the district of Ukulit to... Hitatsu, so. The First Nation has declared a state of emergency, turning off the line to the reservoir, securing tankers to haul water in from Euclid, while the community sourced bottles. Challenging, but I mean, we're, we're working through it. Um, citizens are, you know, being uh, informed about our situation as it progresses. But at the same time, they're learning about what might have caused this, possibly triggered by the volcanic eruption and subsequent tsunami advisory. We're all trying to figure out the correlation between uh, the warning and the crazy tide. So and if that contributed to this pipe that pretty much lost some of its anchoring system on it, which caused it to basically rise to probably mid-water. Then, early Monday morning, a tug pulling a log boom caught the floating water line and dragged it to the surface. And you can see at both sides of the beach where it drug until it snapped at a connection. Fisheries and Oceans Canada is in the process of analyzing the data collected at the Euclid Harbour's out-tide gauge. But at this point, it's unable to confirm if the tsunami surge is what caused 
caused the waterline to dislodge from the seafloor. Still, the possibility has given everyone a lot to think about. How something that happened more than 9,000 kilometers away can create such a ripple effect. We can't wash any fruits or vegetables, so um, it definitely has been <laughs> very tricky and hard. In the meantime, the community is rallying together. This motel offering rooms to shower for those in need. I know that it has helped a great deal. It will likely be another week before the waterline is up and running again. The ordeal being called eye-opening on every level. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Seems like a very small planet in, uh, when you hear stories like that. Okay, the sun came out today. Shocking for a lot of people. We all were stunned in the newsroom, <laughs> turned around and looked out the window, and uh, you had a front row seat to see it, Christy. Sure did. It was a gorgeous sunset, and that really leads us into the next few days. We've been advertising this big upper-level ridge that is settling in over the south coast. Here's a look at it. Drives a jet stream well north of us, protects us from systems moving in. But underneath that high pressure, we tend to get a stagnant pattern, very little winds, and we get a bit of an inversion that develops. So we are hoping for some sunshine, but it looks like we could start to see this either inversion or what we call radiation fog develop. Can you let me know if you're seeing the graphics change there? Because I am not seeing that on my end. You are. Okay, good. As long as you're seeing... So it has prompted an avalanche warning because of the fact that a lot of people are going to head out into the mountains. It's going to be gorgeous up there, but it is cause for concern because when you get the heating of that uh, snowpack, uh, you can get some destabilization of those weak layers. So sea to sky as well as south coast inland mountains are a concern, as well as many mountains in through the interior, as you can see here. In the meantime, we still, it's not all of the uh, BC area that's going to be protected. Uh, northern regions will see some snowfall that's in the central interior region as well as a risk of freezing rain tonight and into tomorrow. Uh, those areas will start to see a bit of a clearing as we head into the weekend. It's mainly southern BC that is going to see the drier conditions over the next little while. So there's your forecast for, for tomorrow. We are going to see a fair amount of cloud cover across the region. Uh, we're hoping for more breaks of blue sky across Vancouver Island. Uh, if you want to see the sunshine I suggest you head higher up and of course in the afternoon that that cloud cover or fog can dissipate if the sun is warm enough, uh, but it's really tough to know if and when that will happen. So we'll just keep our fingers crossed. In the meantime, here's your center window's weather window for tonight from Kersley, B.C. Beautiful sunset shot. Thanks to Jeff for that one. Back to you guys. Gorgeous. Thanks, Christy. The Enderby Fire Department got a call for an unorthodox high-angle rescue today, but unfortunately didn't have the equipment needed to complete the task. So that's when crews from BC Hydro came to the rescue instead. Global's Travis Lowe explains. I'll be honest, things didn't look good for this bird when I arrived on scene Thursday morning. It was just starting to get light out and we noticed something hanging there. But I was assured by the woman who called for help that it was still alive. My boyfriend said, what is that? And I said, I think it's a bird. A great horned owl to be exact. One that had run afoul of some soft netting meant to prevent baseballs from escaping the diamond behind the local arena. We're assuming he's the same owl that lives in the backyard. Those who live in the area had already nicknamed the owl Houdini. Ironic, considering the owl wasn't able to live up to its moniker and escape on its own. No telling how Houdini became entangled in the nylon netting, obviously never saw it coming. Also ironic, considering owls have incredible vision. 
but without a ladder truck, Enderby firefighters couldn't come to the bird's aid. That ruffled a few feathers. Fortunately, Owens called a friend at BC Hydro who came to the rescue. We'll cut the net and then try to secure him and get him down safely, him or her. Within minutes, Simpson and a firefighter were up in the bucket and cutting the twine. Houdini instantly sprang to life, complicating matters. Eventually, a blanket was wrapped around the owl, and when all the netting was cut away, the stressed-out bird was transferred to an awaiting cage provided by a volunteer with the Orphaned Wildlife Rehabilitation Society. We'll probably west jet him down to Owl in Delta. He'll get checked out. Um, and they'll make sure he's okay and that he can fly and hunt, and then they'll try to bring him back here and release him right here. Concerned neighbors, okay, happy, knowing their feathered okay. friend was freed. Just excellent, just excellent. It just, it makes you feel good, eh? I am so happy when I first saw him. It was like he wasn't moving or anything, but it's turned great to see him come down. Travis Lowe, Global News, Enderby. Houdini escapes. All right, let's check in with Squire right now and look at what's coming up in sports. Ender BBC, home of former major leaguer Kevin Reimer. Ah. Yes. Uh, it's official. The Whitecaps traded goalkeeper Max Crapo because he basically asked to be moved for a personal reason. This is not about money. This has nothing to do with anything at the Whitecaps. The personal problem is not being publicized, but the Whitecaps felt it was their duty to help Max get into a better situation. He will be missed. Also coming up, this is B.C. Tractor mechanics pulling together to get flooded farmers back in the fields. Well, the November floods in the Fraser Valley devastated farmers, and many of them are still trying to get their fields back in shape. But fixing all of those flooded tractors takes a real team effort, as Jay shows us in This Is B.C. There's water in everywhere in the crankcase, in the oil filters, in the hydraulic system. Since the start of December, this mobile band of mechanics has been traveling from farm to farm, helping victims of the Abbotsford flood. And this guy already has the batteries and everything? That's what he told me. They've given up their Sundays to try and save some expensive pieces of equipment. It's about an hour drive, yeah, but uh, it's worth it to see the guys and to see the look on the farmers' faces when uh, we get their stuff running. There have been some victories, but some of these tractors are in really bad shape. We cross our fingers because this has got most electronic on it. Through word of mouth, an Abbotsford mechanic assembled this crew after seeing how many neighbors were struggling. Oh, did you see the water? So far, they've revived close to two dozen tractors. Something like this happens, you gotta stick together as a community, help out everybody together. We're going to do this work because all this, you know, this uh, Sumas Prairie area is all getting, you know, hit pretty bad. Providing free labor is their way of helping people who have lost so much. These trucks are underwater. So you can see the water level got that high, yeah. right to the middle of the trailer. 
They've met families picking up the pieces after their homes were destroyed. We're just gonna wait it out, see what we can get for all this, and then hopefully rebuild. Not much time for a break. Lunch is pizza off the back of a flatbed truck and Pepsi served on wooden planks. This is so good. Yummy. Okay, no problem. And then it's off to the next job. The crew estimates they'll be working every Sunday until the spring. We're short-handed as a mechanics. We need more mechanics. They won't stop until every last tractor out here is up and running again. Last time I work all day here to like help them and uh, after serving, like, oh, it's feeling so good. Jay Durant, success, Global News. Those guys are heroes. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC you want to share with everyone, just email your ideas to Jay Durant at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. So good to see that. Uh, so good to see the sunshine, too, and glad to know more is coming, Christy. Thanks for a, a hopeful forecast tonight. Have a great night, everybody.